Welcome to the Glass Lab podcast, where we talk all things product development. It's our goal every month to introduce you to the people, ideas, and development tools that are shaping the hardware products we all use every day. to the Glass Lab podcast. Joining us this week is Dick Aderman with um, Boomerang Ventures, and you are currently the studio director there, I believe, if that is uh, correct. And then, as always, I've got Grant Chapman back, uh, CEO here at Glassboard. So we're excited to have you on the show this week and um, more excited to learn more about you and what you do over at uh, Boomerang and uh, all, the, all the fun trouble you get into. Yeah, it's <laughs> a lot of fun trouble. Thanks. Yeah. No, it's been, been great working with Boomerang over the last, you know, I think, year and a half, two years now, um, throughout, you know, a few of your programs and kind of seeing how your studio process works. And, uh, as much as I can't wait to jump into what studio means and get in that process, I think the story of how you got here will make the studio side so much more useful of, of you know, what your role is and how you, how you work there. Sure. But I'd love to know, you know, where did you start out in the, the crazy world of building products and companies and, and things like that and going from there? Yeah, I, um, I started, uh, about 40, 42 years or 43 years ago uh, with a company called American Hospital Supply. I was in the healthcare industry. is one of the, probably the top company to work for. When I came out of college, it was, you interviewed with uh, Procter & Gamble, IBM, or American Hospital Supply. So I worked for American Hospital Supply for a number of years, started off in the laboratory business in, and started in marketing. And, um, you know, rapidly, and it was a sales company, mm-hmm. right? A distribution company. So all kind of the commercial aspects of that. So um, did that, and um, as I progressed in my career, really started to think about what are the things that you, you know, ultimately I said, I'd like to be a CEO. I want to run a business. And so started to think about what are the pieces and parts that I have to put together to do that. And so really started going into my career and kind of picking through that. Um, led sales organizations, marketing organizations um, with, with American. And then ultimately we were, uh, we were bought by Baxter in 1985. <clears throat> and then I was with another division in 1992 and 90 through 95. And then 94, we were actually sold by Baxter to Bain Capital. So it was kind of my first exposure out of the corporate world and into the private equity world. And um, we headquartered that uh, company in Chicago area. So I moved back to Chicago and uh, worked there for a couple of years before I got a call to come down to Indianapolis and work for a company called Barry Mannheim. So, um, came down to run marketing there. And a couple of months after we got, or after we got uh, moved in, um, I got a phone call on a Saturday morning. Hey, uh, Roche is going to buy us. What, what, what do you know about being bought and sold? Come on in and tell us how this merger is going to go. Um, and I, I remember, it, you know, we walked in the door and I said, you know, it's not a merger. They're buying us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're going to kind of tell you what they want you to do. And it was really uh, interesting. I know I'm going kind of off on a tangent on my career, but it, 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 I think your career is all about learning. So the things that I learned that were different from when Baxter bought us and when Roche bought us, um, Baxter was two different cultures and it never really came together. So we, um, I would say it was an unsuccessful <laughs> merger. And, and if then, you can and, share, like what, what were those cultures like and, and why don't you think they mesh? Um, well, so um, Baxter was, Baxter was a very kind of like uh, East Coast, Harvard business, Princeton, Yale you wear the tie, the tie pretty tight. There was a tight, tight ties. Everybody wore white, uh, white shirt. And I think there was red ties and blue suits. American hospital supply was 
just a bunch of sales guys. <laughs> so, you know, like the, the, the CEO yeah. at the time, uh, Carl Bass. Yeah, like yeah. Yeah. Carl, a few gunslingers there. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a neat culture, though. I'll talk about it a little bit. But um, Carl Bays was from Western Kentucky University, played football there. He's a big, gregarious guy. Um, but it really built American into this powerhouse mm-hmm. of uh, a place where you really, it, it is, uh, I couldn't have worked at a better company to learn to get the foundation for my career. Um, we got a lot of responsibility as young people. Um, I, by the time I was 27 years old, I, I, was, I, was product, I was marketing manager for a $200 million product line. Wow. And I looked back on that and said, I wouldn't give that to a <laughs> I wouldn't give that to me. <laughs> so we did some neat things. We had some really great people that we worked for, and they gave us a lot of responsibility, and then you were expected to perform. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't, you, you didn't know, make it. Yeah, yeah, you didn't make it. It was, you know, I, I went out as a sales manager for a while with the organization. and We had no sales training. So it's like, I'd bring on new people. Here's a catalog. Here's a price list. Let's go visit your customers. And then you're on your own, yeah. right? And so it was like that. So that was a great uh, culture for us to grow up in. And I, I, I tell a story all the time. <clears throat> Even today, sometimes I'll go to a conference someplace and I'll be talking to somebody. I'll get introduced to someone that doesn't know me. And they'll say, uh, did you work in American Hospital Supply? And I'll go, yeah, why? You guys all look alike, you sound alike, you act alike. You know? <laughs> so it was a really, really strong culture. And yeah, actually, the Kool-Aid was really strong. Yeah, and actually I, I, I met my wife there. So 35 years later, here we are. And I, my philosophy is great cultures produce like-minded people. I think that's why you find a lot of people that do get married in a, out of a culture like that. And, uh, and I did pick up on that. I think the culture part is not just great culture. I think strong cultures that are, whether it's good or bad, the strong ones, self-select and yeah. that self-select <clears throat> is why that there's the, you know, that feeling of, Oh, it worked or it didn't with those employees was comes out of more neutral culture, whether it's good or bad, just completely in the middle. Don't have that self-selection. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. There's more, you know, I, Oh, trying to get you up to where we need you to be from just a performance spec metric, but the culture never really fits then. Right. Yeah. Every know. once in a while in America, you'd see somebody go, you know, I don't belong. Yeah. How did you make like, it? How, how'd, how'd they get here? Right. And, and you'd find that very shortly, couple of years, maybe they'd, they'd be yeah. off going, doing something else. Mm-hmm. Baxter, on the other hand, was <clears throat> very buttoned up, like I said, very, you know, uh, Harvard business, so on and so forth. It was, um, you know, a, a bunch of MBAs running the business. We had a bunch of undergrads yeah. running, the, mm-hmm. you know, running the business at American. And actually, you'd go in after, like, a, a year or two after they'd, they'd acquired American, and they closed American's headquarters in Evanston, moved everything to Deerfield. And you go into the lunchroom, the cafeteria, and you could see two sides. Like the split. The guys in the suits and the guys mm-hmm. in the pink shirts and ecru and light blue and uh, no, no jackets on. So, and it was American and Baxter, just totally different. Do you think yeah. that was just a huge failure in due diligence then? I mean, do you, you, you say it. I mean, I'm sure hindsight 2020, right? It's probably seems like a much starker difference, right? But I mean, do you think that that's something that companies when they are looking at a merger and acquisition, whatever, right. Is company culture something that in in your experience is actually like looked at, or is it just pure, you know, market fit financials, all of that. Cause I mean, seems, seems like a pretty big miss. Right. And I think it's it's a huge risk. I think in any merger is just how, first of all, just, just HR overlap in general is a huge risk. Right. And like, 
who are we going to let go? Or, you know, is, is there going to be a lot of attrition here that's yeah. going to happen either organically or inorganically between just infighting and people having the same titles and fighting over position and roles. Right. But then, yeah, yeah I just think, man, I, I just, a culture that's like you said, like that starkly different. I'm just wondering like who kind of in the room or just was nobody paying attention, right? No, um, they weren't paying as much attention because there were other reasons behind it. Um, yeah. At the time, American was trying to merge with Hospital Corporation of America. We were going to actually own hospitals and supply hospitals. Yeah, it was going to be a really cool thing. integrated system, yeah. And <clears throat> we had a very small intravenous uh, solutions unit at American. Baxter's was market leader. Mm-hmm. And so they figured out a way to buy us with our own money. Um, it was an unpopular decision by American to merge with HCA. And so um, there's a guy named Carl Icahn on the board. And I'm favorite. And many of the other uh, many of the other shareholders weren't. So Baxter came up with a way to buy the company, pay a lot more than what the you know, I think the it, open share price was. Price I think that was going to be like a thirty two dollar stock. Yeah, you know, thirty two for thirty six dollar. And uh, trying to remember all of it correctly, but it, you know, some somewhere in the fifty sixty dollar range is what Baxter was going to pay, and then. We had a ton of cash, yeah. so they ended up using that cash. So, so that's that, purely done for MBA strategic reasons, not a, and a that's, we're actually interested in, in acquiring this company mm-hmm. to help. This was entirely uh, chess, not checkers. One was a really strategic, you know, yeah. we're, you know undergrads running the business. The other was like, this is a financial decision. Yeah. And, you know, they're all financial decisions at the end. But um, so the Roche acquisition of Bering was Actually, it was, it was number one that the strategy behind it was great. It had a long, uh, a, you know, a really, um, really long opportunity in terms of what we think the strategy could be. You know, we always think about <clears throat> in new products when we bring them on. Yeah, there's a first generation. Is there a second? Is there a third? Because as we're thinking about an exit um, with with Roche, there was a really a long term play. Um, <clears throat> they bought Bering and Mannheim, which was a German company, uh, right down the Rhine, <laughs> or right up the Rhine from, from Basel. And um, their stated reason was they didn't really have a very big diagnostics unit. They had a huge pharma unit. And what they really wanted to do, they saw, uh, they, they had at the time the molecular unit, and they saw the merger of pharma and diagnostics because of the ability to... Um, actually look into your DNA and how's that going to, and we, as we think about creating new medicines, how will that play out? So they had this foresight going back into the uh, mid nineties. Really? Yes. Because personalized medicine is a very hot topic today, but I would not have guessed that a lot of people were looking at that in the nineties. No, um, I always forget the guy's name, Kiri. I forget his last name, but he's the guy that invented uh, PCR. Mm -hmm. And and Roche, Roche owned it. Wow. And so they were looking around for a, <clears throat> for a large diagnostic company that would fit their culture. Mm-hmm. Abbott, A&J, probably not. <clears throat> probably not somebody that's, you know, going to sell their businesses off. Bering uh, um, and Mannheim was a uh, family-owned business, actually. And it just made a lot of sense. And, uh, um, of course, having kind of... Germanic languages sure. helped a lot of that. I think the still, culture is still privately owned at the time, or was it public as well? Uh, we had what, what things were called ADR. Oh, which Beringer? Beringer, yeah. Beringer was all completely private. Okay, yeah. And uh, so when they when they sold it, um, 
we actually spent an entire year plan. Well, we spent an entire year planning the integration of the two businesses right. before the acquisition was completed. Mm -hmm. So we had to, we had to right justify the product lines, um, the approach we were going to take, um, the teams, the yeah. teams, all of that happened so that, you know, on day one, when it was yeah. finally, you know, I think this thing was announced like in May, May of 97. And I think we completed everything. I think we all went to Basel like February of 98. Yeah. And they, then they sat us down, which was, uh, we got in, into an auditorium. It was all the country managers. We got in there <clears throat> and they proceeded to talk about how they were going, you know, how the strategy of, um, development innovation was going to work and why it was so important. And it was this idea of, um, we're going to invest a lot of money up front in innovation and we're going to do, um, obviously when you have a value that you're creating, you can charge more for it. And that allows you to make more profit, which allows you to reinvest in your business to develop more new products, to make more profit, Compound to reinvest. It's, it, it, you know, it was the first time a CFO had really said that, that I'd seen in my career. So by then it was, I was 15 years into it, um, that really, um, sat down and went through, this is how we're doing this. And, uh, it was just brilliant. And, um, I think that they very much stayed true to it. Um, so yeah. And then there were all sorts of new things coming along all the time. No, that's, that's such a cool narrative to hear about that compound interest being in innovation, not just in a banking sense or a dollar sense, right? Right. That you actually have to invest in innovation and it's going to be painful in the short term because you're not going to have that capital to go use to be right. operational. <clears throat> and it's also at some amount of risk, no different than the stock market or other investments that you make. Yeah. But you have to keep putting something in the, in that piggy bank so that there's enough to go do it again. Yeah. So that gets into the, you know, so then, so when I was at Roche, <clears throat> I ran the corporate accounts business unit. We had a great success there. They, they turned us loose and gave us, you know, kind of carte blanche. And, and I, I think our organization performed very well. So then uh, there was an underperforming organization that they asked me to, to um, lead. And uh, it was, um, it was about 300 million and we were losing money. And um, you know, we did a whole bunch of things. Um, we had five strategies. Part of it was uh, operational excellence, and then we really took a really hard look at our, our um, customer base and decided who our products best fit were. And actually, we'd gone through some of that already as in, in the acquisition uh, phase, but it wasn't being implemented. So we spent a lot of time working on that, um, and we had a lot of new products. So we kind of refashioned how we went to market. Um, and then we did some innovative things. We had some... Um, we, we uh, built up a service organization where we'd never charge money for profit for, you know, the idea was never to make a profit. We turned it into a profit making enterprise and then started to build out services. A couple of interesting guys that um, here in Indianapolis would know their names um, came in and worked for us in that endeavor. One was uh, Mike Fitzgerald, High Alpha, and the other was Elliot Parker, who's also with High Alpha. Yeah. And gone on, very proud of those guys. They've gone on to done some really great things. So, um, so did that for a while. We had great success. And uh, I had a kind of a vision of what I thought we should be doing with information. And I don't think it played as well internally as I wanted to at that time. And um, so went off and um, started working for a local entrepreneur um, that had a, 
an idea around uh, physician software for, for physicians. And um, I did that for about a year and a half. We didn't have any success ultimately with it. I still thought it was a great idea. Um, we had a modicum of success, but went on and uh, joined a couple other uh, startups. Then in the process, one of them was at Quadrispect up in up at Purdue. <clears throat> and um, our issue, you know, you know, successes and failures. We were uh, we were <laughs> we were on uh, Wall Street on the first Tuesday of October, two thousand and eight. Exciting times. It was a really exciting day. Oh man. We were negotiating an agreement with an Irish company and uh, in the middle of the call or in the middle of our discussion, finalizing a, an agreement, um, um, the COO and the VP of R&D got a phone call from the chairman of the board. He said, I just let you know, I've just fired the CEO, but tell the guys, you know, across the table from crowd respect, we're still going to do the deal. Of course, we walked out into the, you know, that afternoon we walked out into chaos on Wall Street yeah. because it was the day the market crashed. And we just kind of looked and went, there's no way we're going to get this deal. They're not going to sign this. Yeah, there's and no way. They yeah, fired I, the CEO in your meeting? Well, he, he wasn't, wasn't there. there. Got it, got it. But still. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 <laughs> the COO, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember his name. Anyway, great guy. He goes, oh, well, you know, uh, full disclosure, boys, the CEO's been fired. You know, and we kind of went, Okay. Oh. I mean, the deal's still going to go on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, those are the things. Might have been a, a red herring for what was about to transpire oh, later in the day, maybe, right? Yeah, like, oh, my goodness. We had, we had all sorts of great, great plans. It was a great little piece of sure. equipment. And, you know, our, our CEO at the time, Chad Barton, had put a ton of time and energy into it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of money that gone into it. We'd had angel investors. You know, mm -hmm. we'd, put, we'd, we'd put $18 million yeah. into this thing. So it was, a, it was literally, you know, finger in the brass ring. When people talk about timing being... Everything. critical thing in business like that that is one of those things right like wow. literally you could the stars could align and if the timing isn't right yeah you know that that one piece what do you do yeah. right yeah like, i mean and that narrative cuts both ways you might not be ready to be purchased or merge or have a big deal go through but if someone needs what you have so bad you can skip all the other stuff because they're just going to go for it and it, yeah. that, that stars aligning really is that double-edged sword that cuts either direction and you don't get to pick the luck. You just have to be prepared. Yeah. So we had deals. <clears throat> so we had deals. So that was a clinical diagnostics deal. We had another deal in life sciences at the same time. And we had a, another deal going. We were actually doing a pilot program with the animal health <clears throat> organization. And uh, so as a result of not getting that, then the life sciences guys went, yeah, we're, we're not going to do it either. Yep. Um, they, I think they would have given us maybe dollar for dollar back. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't want to take that deal. And then we ended up selling the animal health piece. And uh, the business still survives today, but in a much different form. And it hasn't, it hasn't performed like we had forecasted it would perform. So that's, you know, that's the other thing. When you're thinking about doing multiple deals, you know, like, oh, if I get this, then I'm going to get that. I'm going to, you know, um, you have to be really careful about how that's going. And, you know, there are just situations where macroeconomics yeah. Just clobbers you. I mean, yep. you know, we, we, you know, we see that in the, the vacillation over time of early stage businesses and funding <clears throat> versus more seed or series stage companies. Right. So, you know, we're, we, you know, you hear, well, we can go on to my other thing. So after doing that, then I went off and ran a private equity company based company um, out in California. And we, um, we obviously, so it was a turnaround. Mm-hmm. 
So this was like my second big turnaround in my career. I'd have it, I'd, and I did all throughout my career. I'd also introduced a number of new products as well. <clears throat> Actually, it was my third turnaround because when I had the the um, two hundred million dollar product line, it was all. You know, um, it needed some help. It, it was all base equipment, um, and it, it needed uh, help in terms of uh, sales growth and profitability. Right. And so we really set out on that. But in this company, then we really need to do a turnaround. There have been issues with the customers. I, I could go on and on. Um, at, at the end of the day, we sold off one piece, made enough to pay off the original acquisition price. And then um, we decided, we all held hands and decided to build a brand new instrument for allergy and autoimmune. And <clears throat> we found a supplier to help us out with that. We did a number of things to, to get that product completed rapidly. Uh, we, we did it in five years. Normally it's about eight years. We did it in about 40 million bucks, give or take. And, um, and that usually, everybody said it's going to take you 160 million. Um, and then we sold it off to a, an investor from China. And so they're running it today. Um, and yeah, so that's where it stands. Um, um, I'm, I'm trying to remember what I was going to say that related back to it, but it, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, it really comes down to all, it's about automation or uh, innovation and how can you continue to stay in the marketplace and, um, and stay I'd, relevant to the marketplace, stay relevant to the marketplace. And so that's, what's cool about being a boomerang is just the stuff we see and it's, you know, we're connected to healthcare. Um, so it's, Right, been right up my alley. I've been in diagnostics. I've been in medical devices, health information technology, um, health services. So all a number of different areas. And um, honestly, by design, I, you know, I kind of picked these things as I, um, you know, built my career. And uh, and then boomerang is something that I think more, more more or less fell into my lap. And I feel very fortunate to have been chosen to to come as an XIR a year ago, year and a half ago, or a year and a quarter ago. And then um, just really like the model and the people that I'm working with and uh, the cool stuff that we get to see all the time. So, you know, we work with academic institutions, um, health systems, some corporate, some founders, um, and um, we just see neat stuff coming out. And then we, we have a process by, you know, so how do we kind of separate what's ready to go and from what's maybe not? Right. And I think the, the super neat part, other than all the cool stuff that you, we've gotten to work on with you and the stuff that you, that you could see outside of, of just where our wheelhouse is, is the blended model that Boomerang has. Yeah. Boomerang Ventures is a venture a VC, right? It's a venture capital uh, <laughs> firm. And there's Boomerang Ventures Studios, right. which is different. And I know that a lot of people that might listen to this know what an accelerator is, but a studio is a bit different. Can you help us, you know, understand or explain to anyone else that doesn't know the difference between an accelerator and studio where those lines are drawn? I wish I had my slides with me from a presentation <laughs> I did about a month ago from my alma mater. Um, they, I, I think at best, when I think about an accelerator, it's a place where people can go and they can get mentored mm -hmm. and um, they can help you get to your pitch. At Boomerang, what we do is we work with founders who are fit for us and need our resources, whether, whether it be an executive in residence who we assign to them for a period of time in our stages one and two. Um, and that period of time is, you know, is about six weeks in stage one and about 75 days, give or take in stage two, at least that's our goal. And, um, and then we run them through our process with our XIR and 
um, many times, again, when you're in an academic institution or you're in a healthcare system, probably working with somebody that has a day job and, you know, probably isn't going to want to want to necessarily leave what they're doing to go run their business, but they have a great idea that they've been, uh, they've taken time and money to work on. And so um, we assign that XIR to them and then we get them through our process. And at the end of our, at the end of our stage two, you know, there's, um, there's really three things that we'd like to have ready to go. Uh, Number one, we'd like to have a CEO ready to go. Um, number two, we will have a pitch deck ready to go. And number three, then we'll provide funding. So we provide that first upfront get piece started of funding, funding, right? Get, get started funding, a quarter of a million dollars. And then we look for others. Then we go out and look for our venture partners out in the uh, ecosphere to, to help us do that as well. And then, uh, and then we go into our, you know, that's our, that we put them in a stage three. And then of course we help fund in stage, uh, in the, the seed stage then as well. And uh, again, work with, venture firms out there. And then as you get into series A, it's really up to uh, the team to go get their own, their, you know, their next series of fundraising. We do not play in that today. Yeah. You're, you're not looking to advertise <clears throat> your, your cohorts that you're going to follow on that late uh-huh. in the game. You guys are the launch platform, right? Yeah. To, yeah. Get, to get ideas off the ground. And one of the, the cool things that you guys offer that an accelerator might not uh, is the super technical founders. You guys are the right fit for yeah. Right. You're the founder that is the scientist or the doctor or, or the software right. developer that needs help starting and running a company around their great idea. Yeah. That's where I like to, when people ask what's the difference, that's where I was like, oh, if you just want to work on the tech side, the studio is 100% it for you and the accelerator is not going to give you enough. Yeah. They're not going to be, uh, give you all the support you may need. Yeah. So, you know, the other thing we talk about is, you know, part of our differentiation is experience and talent. And so, all of us on the team have a tremendous amount of experience, especially in healthcare. So Oscar Morales, I don't know his background. He's got tremendous experience. Um, um, Audrey Beckman, many, many years at Biomed Zimmer, bought dozens and dozens of products to market. She ran their, um, you know, their development uh, of their entire knee business over the years. So, um, a wealth of knowledge, how to work with physicians, regulatory, um, you know, process. Well, I, so I'm, all those steps. Audrey's user-centered needs process is one of my favorite pitches of that process I've ever been been getting to sit in and like yes. walk through like why you can ask these questions. Her her determination that the user is the end-all be-all in the early oh, yeah. stages is such a good delivery of that. Again, at Glassboro, we've adopted this design process that the user is really what matters. They're yeah. the end client at the end of the day and the person that's going to use this to, to success or not. And if you start yeah. with them, you'll figure the rest of it out along the way quite well. Yeah, it's an, it's an essential piece, really, in, in part of our process. Um, I've learned a lot through it. I wish we'd had it at Highcore because uh, our private equity-backed company out in California, there, there's a couple of things that we missed that I think were important uh, and having gone through a process like this with Audrey would have definitely... Helped us make sure that we caught everything. And then Eric Beyer is a uh, tr- emergency room physician by training. Um, and I learned a story about him. He said, you know, when, he, when, they were, when they were, he's in his residency, and I think, you know, I don't know, where they're in some lounge someplace, all those, his peers were reading magazines about, you know, doctor stuff. And there's Eric with his fast company magazine, <laughs> thinking, about, <you> know, <laughs> thinking about startups and things like that. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and so after he graduated. An and entrepreneur went, in a white lab coat. Yep. Yeah. And, and he did uh, some entrepreneurial things when he got out. I think he was at Parkview, one of, the, one, of, 
one of the institutions up there in Fort Wayne mm-hmm. and almost immediately applied for his MBA at, at Michigan and got his MBA. And so um, he's really had that entrepreneurial bent, but he has this medical background. So, mm-hmm. and then I've got a, you know, big commercial background um, and of course, corporate, private equity and some venture experience. Uh, you, you hit the whole trifecta, right? Yeah. Like, it's like, you know, the, the 500, Le Mans yeah. and, uh, you know, Monaco, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. The, if, you're, if you deal in, yeah. in, in the, you know, in the funding world, right, you've, you've kind of, you kind of ticked all the boxes there, I think. I have, I have. And so it, to be on a team and with, with that much talent and experience is really great. And then what we're doing with bringing the XIRs in is we're, um, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm looking for a lot of the same kind of things. I'm looking for someone who's had corporate experience, uh, at a, hopefully at a senior level, um, venture experience or private equity experience, because those two private equity and, and venture experience are quite different than corporate. Um, I was asked at a, I'm, I'm an alumni of Western Michigan University, and I'm on the um, Hayworth College of Business board there. And I had I was fortunate to be able to speak to um, a number of students. And one of the questions, they said, what's the difference between being a corporation and being a private equity backed company? And I would say you could substitute venture as well. And um, my answer was, you know, there are people who go into corporations and they can hide out until their 25 years are up. If you go into a private equity or venture-backed business, there's no hiding. If you're not creating mm-hmm. value, you know, you, you're, yeah. you're not going to be long for the world. So this is, you know, this is what, this is what people deal with every day yeah. in, in private equity and, and venture-backed businesses. Yeah. So when I look at the, you know, when I'm looking for CEOs or XIRs, I'm looking for people who have created that value understand not just corporate world because you have to have a great training ground and eventually someday if you want to exit since there's a good chance that's where you're going to exit but you know how do you get things done when it's just you or two yeah. or three other people we, we talk very similar with a lot of young engineers that come through Glassboard, mm-hmm. either through you know internships externs you know um even co-ops and i think mm-hmm. that's a big thing that we talk with them about i mean obviously Glassboard is a much smaller entity but we're like mm-hmm. you know, i think early particularly in engineering i think you got to decide not to say you can't change in your career, but I think at least initially you have to decide. It's like, do you want to be a, a really small cog and a really big machine, maybe working on really cool and awesome stuff, but, you know, still small cog, big machine, probably smaller <clears throat> impact, right? Or do you want to be a bigger cog and a much, you know, smaller machine and, and yeah. have a much greater impact over the end product, the end outcomes, what have you, right? Yeah. And I mean, I don't think there's a wrong answer there. I just think that there's sometimes, yeah, you have to decide on, on, where you want to, you know, where you want to live at. Right. Yeah. I always tell people, you know, it, particularly at Glassboard, but other companies like ours that, you know, the highs are really high and the lows are really low, mostly because, you know, you have a high level of responsibility in both outcomes. Right. Yes. So you have to be prepared, I think, for, for really both. Right. You're going to mm-hmm. feel really good about an outcome one day because, you know, you, you have played a big hand in that. And some days it's really hard, right. Because yeah. things don't work out or you, you know, had an idea and it didn't pan out, or you've got to inform the customer or the client that like, Hey, we, you know, we made some decisions early on. We, you know, m- maybe we took some risks in terms of, of the direction that we're going to develop the product yeah. and it's not panning out. Right. And yeah. so that's tough too. Like you said, uh, I like that analogy of, of you're not going to be able to really hide. Right. And that mm-hmm. is, that is the thing that happens at a lot of companies is you're on a big team. And, and even if that team doesn't perform, it's never really your fault because you know, the blame can be spread out enough and dilute enough that you can be like, well, you know, I did everything I could. Yeah. Um, and it, that just exists, I think, much less in 
smaller organizations and similarly in organizations you're talking about when they're, yeah. you know, venture backed or private equity backed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's part of it is, you know, how fast and how hard do you want to learn? Yeah. <laughs> right? you know, no, I, I they agree talk, with that too. They talk about people that, yep. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big sports fan and, um, you know, they talk about people who want to be coached hard. Yeah. And, you know, some people do want to be coached hard. Right. Yeah. You know, um, you, but there's a lot that comes along with that. Yeah. Um, there's, um, but there's a lot of advantage and benefit to that. So mm -hmm. it's really kind of picking and choosing a little bit what you want to do. No. And that's something that I talk with them too, is like, I, if there's one thing that I can promise you, right. It's like at Glassboard, mm -hmm. it's like, you are going to leave with probably far greater skills than, than many other places you could possibly go yeah. simply because of just the breadth of what we see. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, Grant and I just, even the other day, like we were just laughing hysterically because it's like some days you think about like what's physically going on in the building in a given mm -hmm. day. Right. And, and we could like literally be working on a medical device and an IOT device and, and, you know, yeah. have somebody, you know, it's just, there's just wild the, the, the breadth yeah. or, you know, all the different things that could be going on under one roof. Yeah. And it's not a very big building, right? No, it's right. Like, there's an animal cadaver test being right. being ran in the back and there's a drone taking mm -hmm. off in the parking lot, doing some system. And there's software guys demoing a really cool user interface in the next room. And it is only like a 5,000 square foot finished business right. yeah. or building. It's not that big. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, for, for me, the thing I like being a CEO of a business is every, you know, there's a lot of meetings, but every meeting was a different topic. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, you know, for a guy who has a short attention span, you can, a lot of different hats, you, right? You're, yeah. you know, you're engaged in a lot of different things. And, um, that's really, to me is really fun. So if, if, if you, like for you guys, if that's the thing that people like to do is to be in on a number of different projects, you know, that's a great opportunity for them. Right. Versus going someplace where, you know, I'm just going to work on this one thing for right. a All while. You'll learn, you'll learn a lot, but it's just different. Yeah, how to spec the, the bolts in the brake caliper of the Ford Pinto for four years. And it's perfectly efficient. You know exactly how strong the bolt is and exactly how to make it. You know everything about this very narrow field, but you're mm -hmm. super deep. Yeah. Versus being broad and a little shallower. Um, yeah. But this topic brings up a question I've got. And yeah. how do you find XIRs that have corporate experience, um, but maintain the doer Ability, which is necessary in a startup, right? There is, as you said, you know, in, in a larger company, your CEO, you're in a ton of meetings. Again, I'm learning that at Glassboard as we grow. I'm getting more and more meetings and less and less doing things. Mm -hmm. um, but when we were smaller, and especially with all of my founder clients that are running startups and growing, they have to do a lot. Yeah. How do you balance that when you're trying to find the right <clears throat> person for this role? Well, when we, when we look out, we're looking for people who've probably been in, in venture, had a venture experience, maybe two or three of them. Mm. And that's a, you know, that'll teach you a lot. Um, you're obviously looking for their experience in, in, in success in a corporate world. And then, um, and then we, we actually work with a company called Mixed Talent that has helped us develop a, a talent assessment uh, matrix that we have. And um, so we ask a lot of questions about that. We literally plot the people in terms of um, what we've gleaned from their experience. Mm -hmm. And those are some of the experiences that we look for. So it's a really color-coded for I love everything. People who know me know I like to color code stuff. So every, it's color coded and it tells us, you know, where their strengths are and if those are the strengths that we're really looking for. Awesome. Mm -hmm. yep. That's, that's mm -hmm. super cool to see that process more formalized because I was thinking, I'm like, man, that's going to be like needle and haystack style of work to find CEOs that still have the doer mentality and can get their hands like boots yeah. in the ground, right? Not yeah. just, you know, lead in the right direction, have the right intuition and have the right people skills, but also have the ability just to roll up sleeves and you know, write a grant if it's needed for the startup or, you know, insert thing here. Yep. You find out real fast. There's a lot of stuff that you, you have to do. It has to get done. It has to get done by you. If it doesn't, 
You know, your, your company's well, it's, not going to go very It's far. tough, though, because, again, I mean, <clears throat> anytime you're in a large organization, really, I mean, the, the value is in delegation, right? I mean, you can't possibly in large organizations do everything. So a lot right. of times good CEOs are actually good at, you know, triage and delegation, right? Those are probably strengths within that, that skill set in a much larger organization, whereas when you go back to startup land, it's, it's way more about um, actually execution, right? Like physically doing the things that need to be done mm -hmm. and not necessarily picking up the phone and saying, hey, I... You know, you're the right person yeah. to do this. So, yeah, um, I go back to my days at Roche, and they had a, um, a leadership program that they put us through. I think leadership is incredibly important. Um, it's been important in my life. Um, I think it's the thing that I get noticed for, um, that I've been noted for throughout my career. But um, um, one of the things that they saw in my assessment, it was, I think it was called a resource um, allocation or re resource integrator. And so what, what they think about with the resource integrator is that you're looking out in the marketplace or looking out in front of you and seeing what are all the different pieces that I can bring in to help work on what we're working on as a team. And I really do think that that's a, an important piece of being a CEO and especially in a startup is what are those resources out there? And that's where Boomerang, we think we come up and help with that, working with people like Glassboard, Developer Town. You know, Eva Garland, Eva Garland, um, yeah. you know, Pearl Pathways, people that are in our right. cadre, and we've got many um, that are in our, our cadre of um, supplier relationships. And I think that's an important thing for us to have, for them to have access to. Yeah, because you certainly, again, when you're that young, aren't going to be able to go out and just, you know, hire ad infinium for every single role and need that you have, right? So right. I think that <clears throat> that partner network certainly makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And it's even something that I think we've had for a long time at Glassboard. I think even talking, you're looking into 2024, we're like, you know, we really, I think, need to lean into those yeah. even harder because the fact of the matter is at the end of the day, as much as we try to do as much product development under <clears> one <throat> roof as we can, we couldn't do any of it without, um, you know, all the suppliers and the vendors and the right. relationships that we have with other companies. And, and you know, basically the only way we're able to punch above our weight belt for, for size and performance mm -hmm. is the ability to lean on other people that we know can get the job done and, you know, we don't have to go back and, and, you know, spend three months finding that person every time we need the resource, no. right? We just, we just know where to go get it and plug it in for whatever the, you know, the given clients, you know, needs are, right? And, and yeah. they vary all the time. So it's something that you for sure have to be mindful of. Like you're saying, constantly be evaluating uh, the playing field to say, you know, what resources are available and which ones are we going to lean into or plug into to try to, you know, establish a relationship and then maintain it. Right. Yeah. So, um, you asked a question, what's the difference between an accelerator and a studio? And so we, we joined a global group <clears throat> that is a studio group. Um, high alpha is part of that group as well. And what the statistics that they're seeing that they're sharing with us are much faster to your, um, your pre-seed, much faster to your series, A, B, and C, yeah. much faster to your exit. I, you know, I can't quote that um, off the top of my head, but it's, I, I believe it's this access to the talent experience and the supplier resources that studios bring to, uh, to bear yeah. for the founders. Well, and I think the, the other part is you guys have such experience in the mm -hmm. financial side of how to fundraise, how to get non-dilutive yeah. funding, how mm -hmm. to accelerate that money in. Mm -hmm. the, the metric for, for the studio you know, cohorts isn't that, oh, how do I shoestring this to get to here? It is how fast I can get to there, which is yes. very, very different than a founder-led, founder-raised business who's 
they've got X dollars in their personal friends and family round, and they've got to make that last until they can get themselves to a pre-seed or good angels or something like that. Yeah. And you guys have shortened that timeline. So really your, your metric that you're advertising to your, uh, the investors you partner with is timeline. Yes. Right. you you guys are advertising, Hey, reduce risk, reduce timeline, but we need to put capital in to fuel this machine that does right. X, yep. Y, and Z, whether that is grant writing or due diligence or engineering or, you know, financial work or user studies. And I think that's such a cool narrative that we always tell our clients, you can have a good, fast, cheap pick two, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and you can turn any of the knobs you'd like any time during the program, but they affect the other two in subtle ways. And the most you can turn at one time is two. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting you know, philosophy to how do you, which two are important in which position for the company, for their partners, and how do you balance all that? And I think you guys are doing a really good job of picking what you guys are offering, accelerating and presenting the value of that, not just to the cohort, but to the partners that you guys work with. Yeah, thanks. Well, I like the, this concept of just the, the wraparound services, right? This concept, like you were just touching on it, of like, it takes a village, right? It really does. I think like if you look at most startups, a lot of the success and failure probably also just comes down to what's the support network look like, right? Um, whether that's mentors to the founder, prior experience, you know, whatever the case may be. But I think like the more that there is um, a good ecosystem that that is kind of surrounding that company or that specific entrepreneur, like you said before, it just it just raises the statistics of success so much higher. And I, and I think broadly, I think people boomerang among them, others are figuring this out of like, well, you know, why are places like Silicon Valley successful? And you, it seems like for a long time, success in entrepreneurship seemed to be super regional. And I think the more you dig into that, it's more to do with not just geographically what's going on there, but just the support network that exists there. So that if you are a founder and happen to be there, that village is sort of already built in geographically. And how do you, as you start to move the geography across the country, how do you replicate that fundamental concept of creating a village like atmosphere to support entrepreneurs, founders with all the things they need, right? And they need yeah. more than just funding. They need more than just coaching mentorship. Like it really is this holistic thing of mm -hmm. you kind of have to have the entire ecosystem before you really start to get the benefits or the network effects of, of increasing the probability of success, right? If you have just yeah. two or three, it helps, but you don't really get the big bump the until, you, until yeah. you kind of hit that, that critical mass of, of support that, that, that exists, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we've been working on building out here in Indianapolis and in Indiana. Um, but as we do, <clears throat> so we're, we're, um, we've been, we've been out, we're, we're, um, getting, I, we're getting, Deal flow from Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky. Um, That's great. Where else? There's more Illinois. Um, I know we're you know we're talking to people in Wisconsin, Iowa, Missouri. Yeah. Um, so it's far flung, right? Yeah. And so as we go into those different places, you know, we're hiring XIRs, but they don't necessarily have to live and reside here. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, we have one in Chicago, and we just have one joining us from uh, the Ohio area. Nice. And so they're tapped into their separate ecospheres. And so that yeah. helps us build a bigger. So Sounds like you guys are kind of just pushing out more regionally rather than more just, just local to here. Yeah. The, you know, the vision has been to start in India in central Indiana and mm -hmm. let's, let's get going, but we want to go regionally, ultimately nationally and internationally. Yeah. And the time's right. I mean, you know, sure. we have our 10 year goals like everybody else. And uh, you know, that's part of those part of the goals. Cool. And I think the, the one thing that I really enjoy about the narrative of the Silicon Valley outside of it is the one thing in Indiana we don't have is the density, right? We just don't have it. It's cornfields and uh, you know, great 
quality of life, really easy to have a nice home here, but we don't have that density of founders, density of tech startups. But the one thing we do to make up for that is the connectedness and the Hoosier hospitality. Yeah. That if you talk to somebody about your crazy idea, they're probably telling you they're going to introduce you to someone that they, that you need to talk to. And if yeah. you don't want the meeting, it doesn't matter. They're going to give it for you. <laughs> yeah, no, this, uh, um, you know, we just, we were at the, uh, uh, Elevate Ventures party last night mm-hmm. and you get all that, right? You get it for, oh, I need to introduce you to so-and-so. I need to introduce you to this person. You know? So that's the cool part about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. That, that happens pretty freely. And again, it happens between us. I mean, you, you and I both introduce companies, partners to each other throughout, you yes. know, working together for a year and it's just the, the easiest way to work. Um, but no, I think that's a great note to, to end on is that, you know, connectedness and Hoosier hospitality mm-hmm. and it does take that village. Yeah. So definitely say thanks for coming on and, and hanging out with us today. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Okay. Good to see you. Yep. Thank you so much. And um, we'll catch you guys in the next one. Take care.